baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. New York has a crime problem, but is it a bail problem? It depends who you talk to. How do we keep our city safe when the other parts of the criminal justice system, they have abandoned our public safety apparatus? My understanding is the law we put in place was to deal with repeat offenders. This week on 880 In-Depth, we tackle the topic of the bail reforms that took effect in early 2020. Are they really to blame for the brazen crimes we're seeing today? Or is bail reform the convenient catch-all excuse for a far more complex problem? I'm Michael Wallace. Welcome to In-Depth. This week, we tackle the topic of crime in the city, and we look at the impact of New York State's bail reforms put in place two years ago. That's when New York adopted a law ending cash bail in most cases involving misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. The idea back then was far from controversial. So what happened? We asked our Peter Haskell to get on the phone with someone who could help explain it to us. My name is Ames Grower, and I'm senior counsel in the Justice Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Over the years leading up to 2020 or so, there was a growing understanding, just simply put, of the harms of pretrial detention and of the degree to which those harms were inflicted on people who remained legally innocent, had, had not been proven guilty of any offense in a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, and who were wasting um, days and months of their life in jail, um, separated from family, separated from work, separated from the community, uh, waiting for a trial and um, you know, being forced to cope with significant hardship in the process because we all know what jail at Rikers Island is like, unfortunately. Um, and in, in some cases, I mean, we have anecdotal accounts of this, um, taking a guilty plea because they would rather get out of jail as soon as possible rather than um, have to wait another day for trial. Um, there's a growing understanding of those harms. Um, and I think people were very eager to move away from a system where people are detained uh, in jail despite the presumption of innocence for wants of nothing more than the ability to pay for their own freedom. Um, it's worth noting that that concern was bipartisan. Um, there was, uh, in, no more than five years ago, there was legislation at the federal level that involved uh, Senators Rand Paul and Kamala Harris um, working on federal bail reform. Um, so. This is not a uh, radical vision, this move away from wealth-based detention. This is a, a, an area of broad agreement about the harms of pretrial detention and the danger of money bail. But still, before this law was even implemented, there were people claiming that the sky was going to fall and that <laughs> crime was going to skyrocket, and fairly or not, crime has gone up. So what do we know? Yes, this is a great question. So it, it is indeed frustrating that it seemed to me in retrospect that the law was passed um, uh, one month and nearly the next month the forces opposed to the law uh, ramped into action, almost almost like they had been just a little bit late to the debate um, and began spreading this narrative that crime, or that crime would rise because of bail reform. So 
it turned out that crime did, in fact, rise in 2020. However, uh, the link between those two is very difficult, if not impossible, to prove. And more importantly, for our purposes, in the two years since the since January 2020, when bail reform went into effect in New York State, um, no evidence has emerged connecting bail reform to rising crime. So, um, just give me a second and le- and let me take a step back. So. The argument has been all along uh, that bail reform forces judges to uh, release people who would be better detained in jails away from the community, and that the release of those people uh, has led crime rates to increase. And even some have gone so far as to argue has been a prime driver of rising crime. Um, I, I guess I should set some context. It, it, it is true that crime rose significantly in 2020. Uh, nationwide, murder rates jumped by around 30%. In the state of New York, murder rates jumped by even more than that, I believe. Uh, violent crime rose across the country. Violent crime rose in New York State. Um, so it is very true that crime rose in 2020. But um, we're, we're faced with a real serious data challenge in that we're being asked to evaluate the impact of a law that went into effect in 2020 on crime rates that year when so many other things happened that year that might have caused social disorder or chaos or crime to increase. So I guess the first point I want to make is that it's way too soon to know exactly what impact bail reform has had on crime in New York State and crime nationwide. Um, Because of the way that crime data trickled out of state and federal agencies, unfortunately, we're just not working with a ton of data, uh, and data on court outcomes is difficult to come by in the best of times. And it's going to take, uh, it might take a couple of years for really solid sociological, criminological work to come out um, identifying what real link there is between uh, bail reform and crime in 2020 and forward. The, the, the key realization here is just because two things happen at the same time doesn't mean they're causal. Like, crime rose in 2020, bail reform happened in 2020. It doesn't mean that one caused the other. Um, So let's start there. Uh, Next, though, we are beginning to get some data on bail reform and crime. And the data that we're seeing, although it is very preliminary, does not show what we would expect to see if bail reform were the main factor driving violent crime. For example, there's an analysis by um, Joshua Solomon of the Albany Times Union and some of his colleagues that looks at data that the state is obligated to publish under the bail reform law. Um, They find that re-arrest rates are people who are released on bail um, and then accused of a subsequent violent offense while out on bail are actually relatively low. Um, So because we don't have pre-reform data, we don't have 2019 data from the same publication, we we can't say what effect bail reform had on those re-arrest rates. But we can say that it really doesn't look like the driver of violent crime is people who have been released on bail. Um, So if you take a step beyond that, we're starting to get a little more information from um, some of the nonprofit agencies who uh, supervise people who are um, released from jail. Um, Their data as well appears to show very little change in re-arrest rates post-bail reform. Um, So broadly, like what wall... Yeah, let me take a step back. Broadly, while we are still waiting for data that will allow us to make firm conclusions about the effects of bail reform on crime, what we're seeing so far does not support the theory that bail reform is the prime driver or even a significant driver of violent crime. And it's really important that policymakers not get out in front of the evidence on this issue. Um, so just to, to wrap up on, on one quick point, it's worth noting that we that the data about the harmful effects of jail also does continue to mount. So there was a study that was recently 
funded by Arnold Ventures that studied um, jail bookings in, in, I believe it was Kentucky, millions of observations that found that even one night in pretrial detention can be extremely harmful to someone's uh, life trajectory, to their um, economic opportunity, uh, and may even lead them to be more likely to reoffend in the future. So even as the evidence about bail reform's impact on crime remains rather weak, the evidence for the harmful effects of jail detention continues to mount. What's missing in all of the political back and forth is actually, what are we doing about the root causes of crime in the first place? How do we make that jump? How do we get beyond just bail reform to talk about these things and show uh, uh, a willingness to do what needs to be done, be it spending money or otherwise? Yeah, yeah, that's the... That that's the million dollar question, and if I if I had an answer to that, I maybe I'd run for office myself. <laughs> Sorry, but what one of the answers I think is is leading, looking to local leaders and looking looking at what the evidence shows. So, you, you it's it's easy to miss because of all the debate around bail reform in New York City. It's easy to miss that um, some of our local prosecutors are developing some real innovative solutions to different types of crime. So I, I'm thinking of there's a program called Project Reset that the um, five city district attorneys uh, have helped implement over the past few years. Uh, what that project does is if someone is uh, accused of a relatively low-level misdemeanor, um, rather than running those people through the ordinary criminal justice system where they will you know, be charged with an offense, come before a judge, be arraigned, um, and then possibly uh, face a criminal conviction down the line, what the program does instead is it directs them to community service or other types of options to make clear that the thing that they've done is not acceptable to the community and that they are going to be, and that they, there's a social sanction attached to it, that what they did was wrong, but then allow them to um, uh, make amends for it, essentially, by becoming a, you know, a better citizen of the community. And then if, if the person finishes that program, this, this quote, reset, um, then they never acquire a criminal record and they go back to their life. Um, there's really good evidence for programs like this, and uh, there's a study out of um, then-Commonwealth Attorney Rachel Rowland's office in Suffolk County, basically Boston, Massachusetts, showing that um, the overuse of misdemeanor prosecution may actually increase crime in the long run. Um, so there's really good evidence that these types of interventions are both creative and may actually help reduce crime over the long run. And not for nothing, then, that when funding for Project Reset was in danger, um, it was in danger of lasting during the pandemic. All five city DAs took to the pages of the New York Daily News to call for funding to keep the program running as a matter of public safety. So, I, I, I mean, you're asking the most difficult question, which is how we get away from a debate uh, around one issue to get to a broader conversation about innovation and public safety. I think maybe starting with these programs that are working and that are you know, working under the radar and doing good work um, that might be a way to start that conversation. Uh, but it's a, it's a very difficult challenge, and I, I don't want to undersell how hard of a challenge it is. Just to get back to one of the other controversial aspects of bail reform, and I guess it goes beyond bail reform, but there's this question of dangerousness, and should mm. judges be able to consider that? Why should yeah. judges consider dangerousness. Yeah, I mean, also an important policy question, and one that's sort of been addressed in the most recent round of bail reforms. Um, I, I think it's important to remember that, especially in New York State, the goal of pretrial detention 
is to make sure that someone returns to court um, and that they are you know, able to face uh, consequences for their actions. Uh, it's also important to remember that it's very difficult to evaluate dangerousness in an objective manner. I think this would be a very different conversation if we could state with confidence that you know, judges, algorithms, other people are able to evaluate um, how dangerous someone is to society without bias and with real accuracy. But I have real questions about that. I think it's very difficult for us to be confident that um, someone who, that empowering someone with the ability to evaluate dangerousness would lead to accurate outcomes and would not inject unnecessary subjectivity in the process. I think it's a really complicated question, and I, 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 I don't want to pretend to have the answer, but that is the uh, other challenge to work up against. Now, on to the idea that flaws in the new bail reform laws have led to this revolving door justice, as Mayor Adams has been saying. How true is that? My name is Julianne Harris-Calvin, and I'm the director of the Greater Justice New York program at the Vera Institute of Justice. She got on the phone with our Peter Haskell. What we see is that almost all, the significant number at the very least, of people who are released for trial do not get rearrested during the pendency of their case. What we know is that even fewer people uh, are rearrested for violent felony offenses um, during the pendency of their case. And so the Office of Court Administration has released uh, data in two data sets. One set they released uh, at the beginning of this year, uh, just a couple weeks ago, they released another set of data. And we are consistently seeing that 98% of people who are released pre-trial, whether they pay bail and get out, they're released um, under some kind of supervision, or they're just released on their own recognizance, um, 98% of those people are not rearrested for violent felony offenses, which is an incredible success rate. But still, we've got crime going up. We've got people being arrested, rearrested, not always violent crimes, but rearrested. Is that troubling? Shouldn't that be troubling to you? So, you know, it would be great if no person ever got rearrested. Um, but those are stats that we don't see um, pretty much anywhere in life, right? Humans are complicated. But what we do know is that, you know, I shouldn't be forced to languish in jail, potentially lose my home, my children, my job, because maybe you might get rearrested for top listing um, if you're released and I'm released, right? That is not fair, and pretrial detention is actually not supposed to be a punishment. Um, so what we do know, though, is that is a better way to um, help prevent folks from, uh, you know, reoffending is to provide people the kinds of supports and services that really uh, target the underlying causes of a lot of people's mm. um, alleged offenses. For instance, you know, shoplifting mm. um, and many other kinds of crimes that are often driven by you know, human material needs, like people who are unhoused, people who don't have um, food to eat, people who might have mental health um, needs or uh, drug use needs. Right, you know, putting them in jail for six months, twelve months, five years is not going to uh, address the underlying causes, um, and it actually exacerbates stressors. So that when they do eventually get out, because most people do, um, they're actually worse off than before and have a higher likelihood of committing offense, an offense. So what we should do is take the, the 
millions and millions of dollars and billions of dollars that we use in our jail systems in the state and, and use that money to address the underlying causes to give people stability uh, so that they do not resort to the kinds of offenses that brought them into the court system to begin with. I guess the question is, is there the, the funding and is there the political wherewithal to do that, to provide these services? So we certainly have billions and billions of dollars. So in New York City alone, we spend two and a half billion dollars on our correction system. And that's the New York City jails, um, which most people in, in our New York City jails are pre-trial uh, they're detained pre-trial. So we have billions upon billions of dollars to invest. The question you're right is, what is the political wherewithal? And I think what we saw during um, the debate over bail reform when we were passing it in 2019 and in the years since is that there are um, political leaders who do have the desire to do the right thing and approach this in an evidence-based way. And that's why we did have bail reform. Um, but what we need to do is shift from just changing the law around pretrial detention and shift into funding uh, the kinds of supports and services that are necessary to help bolster public safety. Um, And so I think you're right that we have, especially in this election year, there's a lot of rhetoric and political talking points about, you know, criminal justice reform vis-a-vis public safety um, and not actually having uh, evidence-based policy solutions that will actually bolster public safety. And I think it's really hard in an election cycle to get people to focus on the really complex network of investments that need to be made to bolster public safety when it's easy to just blame reform for crime trends that we're seeing across the country in states and cities and jurisdictions that didn't have bail reform, did not have criminal justice reform, just like we're seeing it here. Because it's easier, it's an easier talking point, but it is not a uh, effective policy solution. So why then has bail reform become a boogeyman of sorts? You know, I think people learned their lesson when it came to, back when Willie Horton became the political tool. It was effective. Right? It was effective, and ever since then, we're seeing politicians on both sides of the aisle, right, um, and everyone in between, um, use this fear-mongering around crime and crime rates to drive out the vote um, and to scare people into voting for them um, and to vote based on their feelings and their fear as opposed to the data and the more complicated solutions that are not easy sound bites but are actually more effective. And so I think that is why we're seeing it. It's been effective for a very long time, and it continues to win elections. I want to ask you about one other case. There was uh, this past week a video of a 16-year-old who had been released assaulting a cop. So is that someone who should have been locked up? And how do things change when we talk about a juvenile? So the 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 teenager had been charged with robbery, was released, and um, it sounds like people are using him resisting arrest on a fare beating, $2.75 fare beating on the subway, as an excuse for thinking, we should have locked this child up. Um, And and I think that is the wrong response, because locking this teenager up might have saved us 
$2.75 on the MTA and might have saved this police officer from having to have a scuffle with the kid when he tried to, you know, arrest him on the fair beating. Um, but the long-term consequences that this kid um, is not going to be served by uh, having been held in a juvenile facility. And in fact, the likelihood of that person returning to the criminal legal system is much higher than if we took a beat and and realized we're looking at a kid whose brain is developing and gave that kid the services that he needs. Now, if he was released maybe a week ago on the robbery, of course, that hasn't been enough time um, to give him the kinds of services that he likely needs. But I think being upset that he decided to jump a turnstile and run away from a cop and, you know, resist arrest, um, to me, it's not worth you know, changing the age and filling our facilities with more and more children. I mean, this was not just resisting arrest. He put the cop in a headlock. There was a, mm-hmm. a serious scuffle. Does that not speak to somebody who's dangerous? It could. It, there is an argument to speak to that keeping dangerousness. I don't, uh, dangerous, excuse me. I don't necessarily agree. But what I can tell you is the judge on the robbery case does not have a crystal ball. So there's no way that if the judge on the robbery case a week beforehand or whatever the time period was, that judge could not predict whether or not this kid was going to fight a cop when the cop tried to get him to pay his MTA fare. And so that is, I think, the problem with dangerousness, is that judges are not wizards. They do not have crystal balls. And we the data show that there are racial disparities when it comes to judges predicting who's dangerous. And so maybe that kid would have been locked up but maybe another kid would have also been locked up, a kid who could have gone back to school, could have gone back to their sports and taking care of their ch- their, their siblings. Um, and so us telling judges that we think you have a crystal ball and you can predict an outcome based on you know, a five-minute arraignment hearing um, is not realistic, and the data proves it. Just this week, the New York Post reported roughly one in five people arrested in New York City for burglary or theft last year was rearrested on a more serious felony charge within 60 days of being put back out on the street. It seems clear the challenge going forward is how to keep low-level offenders from becoming serious offenders. If jail isn't the answer, what is? And how do we start impacting the system? That's it for In-Depth this week. Our executive producers are Peter Haskell and Tim Scheld. Thank you for listening. I'm Michael Wallace. swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 